Well, good morning, church. It's so good to be with you, uh, even over this live stream this Sunday morning. Last week I was in Parramatta and uh, in Riley's study and streaming in through Zoom. And it was funny because I looked like a child standing next to him. Like I was about, I don't know, chest, nipple level uh, on him. I really needed a box to stand on. So it's back to have the great to be back here with the pulpit to myself. And the privilege of continuing on in our series on Colossians. So if you have uh, your Bibles there with you, hopefully you do, uh, open it up to Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verse 15 through to 20, where in the hymn section at the beginning of Colossians, uh, looking this week at the second half of what Dave preached so wonderfully on last week. So would you read with me? God's word to us, and then I'll pray for us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we come before your throne this morning by a miracle of your grace. And Lord, as your people, we come before your word this morning in need of another miracle from you. Lord, would you speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit and would you change our lives for your sake? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, recently I was roped into uh, watching uh, the 2013 Baz Luhrmann film, The Great Gatsby. Uh, It's a film based on the novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald from the Roaring Twenties, 1925, and it documents the life of J. Gatsby, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, a mysterious business figure who owns a huge mansion on Long Island, New York. Gatsby becomes famous for holding these extravagant parties attended by the social elite of New York and all around. But as the story unfolds, here's what grabs my attention. 
we learn that Gatsby is driven in life by a singular motivation. Gatsby has his vision captivated by a singular object that controls and motivates absolutely everything that he does. And it's not the desire for money. And it's not the desire for power. And it's not the desire for fame. His obsession is with capturing the heart of one woman, Daisy Buchanan. You see, Daisy Buchanan had completely captured Jay Gatsby's vision. You know, in many ways, we can be just like Gatsby. You know, our vision might not have been captured by Daisy Buchanan, but it can be captured by a million different things. Here's a question I want us to think about this morning as we look at this word. What has captured your vision? You know, Tim Keller says the easiest way to know what's captured your vision is where your thoughts effortlessly go when you're under no pressure whatsoever, when nothing is demanding your attention. Where do your thoughts effortlessly go? You know, our vision is easily captured by our desires, our desire for a relationship, our desire for respect, our desire for recognition, our desire for property, our desire for new experiences. Our vision is also easily captured by fears, our fear of being exposed, our fear of being rejected, our fear of becoming sick, our fear of dying, our fear of COVID-19, our fear of missing out on something. But here's the truth. As Christians, there is only one thing that ought to have captured our vision, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because all of life comes from him and is about him. As we were reading last week in verse 16b, it says, All things were created through him and for him. Everything that exists is for the praise and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. More than that, he is so glorious in the way that he loves us. As our verse today says, making peace by the blood of his cross. Well, if you're taking notes this morning, uh, I've entitled uh, this message with the unimaginative title of The Supremacy of Christ, Part 2, following on from last week. Um, I really have three points for us this morning. I'm going to spend the majority on the first point. But really, this morning is going to be a continued meditation on Jesus Christ and how glorious he is. With one heart for us this morning, as a church, separated in our separate homes, that we would stop and stare at the majesty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what I want for us this morning. Like Jay Gatsby, to have a singular vision, to be captivated by Jesus, to stop and stare at the majesty of Jesus Christ. So let's dive on into our first point this morning. Uh, Point number one, the supremacy of Christ over the church. 
You know, I've loved this week diving into this letter. It was a letter written by Paul to a place that in the eyes of the world was nothing significant at all. Uh, it was set in Colossae or written to Colossae, the former boom town in the fertile Lycus Valley, a place we would likely overlook. It was a new church with baby Christians planted by Epaphras who had so faithfully answered the call upon his life to make new disciples and had returned to his hometown of Colossae to preach the gospel. And as he returned home, some locals received Christ. A small church was planted and was now meeting in the house of a likely wealthy patroness nympha. Uh, amongst those who had come to Christ included Philemon, the wealthy slave owner that we're uh, so familiar with. And our letter was fantastically being carried by none other than Tychicus and Onesimus, Philemon's escaped slave who had since become a Christian, carrying his own separate letter for Philemon. In so many ways, this was a small and unlikely and odd group of new disciples, insignificant in the eyes of the world, but precious in the eyes of Paul and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, last week, Paul had begun this meditation on the supremacy of Christ, speaking about his supremacy over creation, how he perfectly displays God, the creator of all things, the upholder of all things. And this week, Paul continues with a meditation on the supremacy of Christ, not over creation, but over new creation. That is, over redemption. Read with me again verse 18. It says this, And he is the head of the body, the church. When you think of church... What comes to mind? Maybe a building? Maybe a favorite live stream at the moment? Maybe pastors and preaching? Maybe ministries like young adults or youth or outreach or discipleship or gospel community leaders? You know, all these are great, but none of these are the church. The word we translate as church means Gathering or assembly. Simply put, the church is people. When Paul says that Christ is the head of the church in this passage, he's talking about the church universal. He's talking about the gathering of all believers from all of time. You see, Paul is talking about in this moment a divine assembly of all believers from all time in heaven with Christ. Paul sees Christ as right now ascended and on high at the right hand of God the Father with all believers from all of time gathered around the throne. And here's the important thing with us included there. Uh, We read the following in Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. Paul says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Can you see that you are a part of Christ's glorious heavenly assembly? 
You know, Paul will go on to say that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We have received a new life as part of a glorious heavenly assembly, a church that is awaiting for the last moment when it will be revealed with the return of Christ. But notice it's more than just an assembly. Read with me again, verse 18. It says, And he is the head of the body, the church. Why would Paul refer to the church as a body? Well, the answer is, there is possibly no better illustration of the diversity and absolute unity that exists within the church. You see, just like a body has an extremely diverse array of parts, Similarly, Christians are all completely different. Every Christian is a unique creation of God with distinct abilities and gifts, weaknesses and strengths and personality, and no two are the same. And just like a body is tightly joined and no part can function if cut off, so too with the church of Christ. Do you realize friends, that you are permanently joined to all other Christians like the parts of a body. You know, there is a bond that exists between you and every Christian that will never be broken for all eternity. Like fingers on the same hand, or like the tibia and fibula together in the leg, or like adjacent ribs, different. Unique, but each playing a part and inseparable. You know, if you're watching this live stream with other Christians, I just want you to just take a moment and turn and look to the other Christian or Christians that are sitting with you. You are joined and part of the same body. But you're not joined by common interest. You're not joined by age or stage or socioeconomic status. You're joined by Christ. Paul says the following in chapter 3, verse 13. He says, There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You know, the church in Colossae was such a weird and unusual group in the eyes of the world. They had Jews and Greeks who didn't normally associate with one another. They had circumcised and uncircumcised, those that were following the Old Testament and those that were not. They had barbarians who are the kind of modern-day ESLs, people that didn't speak Greek or Latin, and who to those speakers it sounded like they were saying ba-ba-ba, so they called them barbars or barbarians, ESL. Scythians, people from a rural backwater who were considered uncultured and primitive. Slaves. And free, even slave masters, all in together like Philemon and Onesimus. A diverse and eclectic bunch of people, but all joined together so tightly that in Paul's eyes and in God's eyes, one body. Because of Christ. 
You see, the church in Colossae was to be a visible manifestation of the glorious heavenly reality that they represented. Just like Sovereign Grace Church in Warunga, in Parramatta, and every local church faithful to Christ here in this city. But that leads us to remember that our passage isn't just about us being joined to one another, but joined to Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. What does that even mean? What does it mean that Christ is the head of the body? Well, firstly, as we've been talking about, it means we're united to him. That Paul describes him as the head, it means that he's part of the body. It's more his body. We are permanently joined to each other, yes, but in Christ, through the cross that binds us together. You know, Paul knew this truth personally. You know, when Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he said the following to him in Acts chapter 9, verse 4. It says, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my followers. Why are you persecuting me. That is something so profound. Because we are joined to him, because we are part of the same body, catch this. In Christ's eyes, what is done to you is done to him. Consider that. That is how Christ considers you. It's amazing when you think. Onesimus and Philemon, opposite ends of society, slave and slave master, joined together as equals in the body of Christ. But secondly, not just that we're united to him, but that he has authority over us. You see, Christ has absolute authority over the church and all depend on him, whether we realize it or not. You see, as your pastors, we are not the head of this church. We do not own this church. We do not have final authority over this church. We cannot, in and of ourselves, grow this church Friends, we are simply minding this church, which belongs to Christ. He is the head. He owns it. He has authority over it and over every person in it. And he is building it. Here's a really difficult and important question I want us to think about this morning. Is that how I view this church? You know, the truth is that in our individualistic and consumer culture, this glorious truth of Christ being the head of the church is often hidden from us and obscured from us. You see, in our culture, it's so easy to treat church as something that exists to serve us, me, my preferences, rather than the precious body of Christ that is ruled by Christ. It's so easy in our culture to treat it like a soccer club like, rather than 
a local expression of Christ's body over which he rules and reigns victoriously and supremely. It's so easy to be focused on my own personal needs and wants and spiritual experience and to miss that I've been joined to Christ's body by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's a question for reflection for us this week. Does my passion for the local church appropriately reflect the fact that Christ is the head of the church? Does my passion for the local community of believers of which I've been joined reflect the fact appropriately that Christ is the head of the church? Am I devoted to my brothers and sisters in Christ that reflects an appropriate passion for Christ? You know, I remember when my grandparents uh, had their 60th anniversary and uh, wedding anniversary and they received a letter from Queen Elizabeth II. And they were so chuffed. I mean, when I walked into their house, it was the very first thing they wanted to tell me about. How much more should we be filled with passion for those whom the king, not of England, but of glory, not merely wrote to, but died for? So much more. Would our gaze, friends, be fixed on Christ who reigns supreme over the church? But not just that, point one. Point two, the supremacy of Christ over death. Read with me verse 18 again. It says the following. And here's the head of the body, the church. Here's the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might become preeminent. You know, Christ, through his resurrection, marked the beginning of a new humanity. He's the firstborn from the dead. It doesn't mean that he was the first to ever be raised from the dead. I mean, Jesus himself raised multiple people. But the difference is, they all died again. Jesus was the first to be raised in glory. The first to receive a glorious resurrection body a new and internal, eternal life from God. He's the firstborn in that time, in that culture, and meant to be the head, the head of the family. He's the heir to the throne. And also, he's a picture of what awaits us. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, he says, For by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. See, just as Adam's betrayal brought death into the world, so Christ's sacrifice has brought resurrection life into the world. Christ's resurrection body is a picture of what awaits every Christian who's trusting in Christ. You see, Christ wasn't just simply reanimated like Snow White or Sleeping Beauty or something like that. He was raised in glory with a glorious new resurrection body. In Luke 24, we read that Christ was able to eat and drink and people were able to touch his hands and his feet. 
But he was also able to conceal his appearance, to vanish and also reappear. In John chapter 20, he appears inside a locked room. This is not a normal body. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 42. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Do you realize that an imperishable, glorious, power-filled body awaits you? Isn't that a wonderful truth? You know, so many of our anxieties and fears in this life come from our failure to live in light of the supremacy of Christ over death. You know, why are we so obsessed with owning property? Why are we so obsessed with financial security and investments? Why are we so obsessed with career and additional study, with family and relationships and holidays? It's because we're so often trying to carve out a life of security and happiness in this life. But here's what we miss. The glory that awaits us through the firstborn from the dead. You know, statistically, in Australia, I probably have 50 years, Lord willing, left to live in my life. And I could devote my entire remaining life to trying to make something out of my life right here. And in doing so, completely waste it. Because a hundred years from now, odds on, no one will even remember me anymore. I'll be long forgotten in this world. But 50 years is but a single drop in the ocean of life that awaits us with Christ. A thousand years is but a single drop in the ocean of life that awaits us with Christ. A million years is but a single drop in the ocean of life that awaits us with Christ. You know, at times in the Christian community, it can feel like there's a real pessimism about the future of this world. The plight of the world due to climate change, the plight of the world due to moral degradation as culture seemingly moves away from Christian values. The plight of the world due to politics, due to government, due to growth and inequality. Hear me, I'm not denying the real concern about each of these issues. But the thing is, the future is bright. Why? Here's the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. So much of the pessimism that we can suffer from is because we've shifted our gaze from the supremacy of Christ over death. He is an unstoppable work to bring about a new humanity and a new creation. You know, so much of the panic that has descended upon our world due to COVID-19 has come from the fact that the vast majority of people in this world do not know the resurrection power of Christ. Certainly it's a tragedy when someone dies without Christ and certainly there's mourning for those left behind when someone does know Christ. But for those who have faith in him, death is the passing into fullness of life. Even in my devotionals this week, I stumbled across Psalm 116 verse 15, which says the following. It says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. 
Doesn't that strike you as an odd thing to say? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Why? Well, the death of a saint is the moment they taste the fullness of the resurrection power of Christ. You know, this week we farewelled Ravi Zacharias, who lost a short battle to cancer. And I think John Dixon put it best when he said, Today is a sad day for the world, but a great day for Ravi. Isn't that true? You know, earlier this year, I had the privilege of attending the funeral of Brooke's dad, Stu Mengel, and what a privilege it was. A privilege in particular to learn that at the end of Stu's life, he had found a deep faith in Christ and had asked a question of whether or not it was okay if he wanted to go and be with Christ. You see, Stu was a man whose gaze had been transfixed by the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ, his power over death. How about for you? How about for you this morning? Have you been transfixed by the supremacy of Christ over death? Well, that's point number two, but not just point number two, the supremacy of of Christ over death, but point number three, supremacy of Christ among his people. Read with me verse 19. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You know what Paul is saying here is massive. All, all the fullness of the life and power and presence of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. Christ was the eternal Son of God Himself. He was God incarnate, become man for us. All the power, all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the love that created the universe dwelt in this man. But there's more to this expression than first meets the eye. Why was the fullness of God pleased to dwell in Christ? Well, we read the following in Psalm 132:13. It says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired or been pleased it for, to be his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. You see, in the Old Testament, the place that the presence of God was pleased to dwell was the temple in Mount Zion. And Paul is saying here that Christ is the new temple. He is the new place where the fullness of God is pleased to dwell as it fills his body completely. See, the temple is the place where God dwells. It's the place where you could go in order to meet God. And Paul is saying the fullness of God is in Jesus. You now go to him in order to meet God. He is God himself. This is exactly what Jesus taught about himself. It says in John 2.18, So the Jews said to him, that is to Jesus, What sign do you do for us doing these things, that is overturning all the uh, change tables in the temple? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you would raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, 
His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and word that Jesus had spoken. John explains at the start of his gospel that Jesus had in fact come to dwell, to tabernacle amongst us. He had set up a new tent, a new dwelling place, a new temple of God in our midst. He is the tabernacle, the temple, come to earth as a man to dwell with us. You see, we don't know much about the heresy in Colossae except for two things. They were syncretists. They mixed Jewish and pagan beliefs together. They mixed the culture with the Bible altogether. And secondly, they were teaching Christ plus. Trusting in Jesus is great, but not enough. You need Christ plus. You need Christ plus certain diets. You need Christ plus Sabbath and festival observance. You need Christ plus severe self-discipline, worship of angels, special visions, worldly philosophy. Bottom line, faith in Christ alone is not enough to be reconciled to God. You need Christ plus. But I put to us this morning, not just for Colossae, but for us as well, it's so easy to believe you're a second-rate Christian because you're an emotional wreck or because you've got a past you're ashamed of or because you're struggling with a certain sin or because you're not in full-time ministry. Even if you're not religious, you know, our culture will say, believing in Christ is great, but you need to make something out of your life. You need a good career or to own a house or to travel the world or to have kids at university. What Paul is saying here about Christ completely shatters the idea of needing anything in addition to Christ. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. He is the temple itself, the walking, breathing, living presence of God himself. But Paul doesn't merely explain that Christ is the new temple. He moves on to explain why that is amazing. Read with me verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, the coming of Christ in our midst was always about reconciliation. You know, we were talking the other week about reconciliation and how reconciliation implies broken relationships. Two parties who were once united, who were once friends, and now want nothing to do with each other, now are hostile in relationship. And that is the nature of humanity. Cut off from God, but not equal in blame. The blame is all one way. We rejected God's kingdom for our own. The devil put it so well when he said in his temptation of Eve in the garden, You can be like God, knowing good from evil. You can be like God. We wanted to try self-rule for ourselves, and we blasphemed God and became at war with him. And the result is our world is broken and filled with death. COVID-19 is only a reminder of what has always existed, pain and suffering and death. You know, every week in my work as a physio in the community, I met with people facing death, the vast majority without Christ. 
pain and brokenness, suffering and death in this broken down world. But Christ's coming is more than just providing a ticket to heaven or forgiveness. It's about reconciliation. It's about restoration of relationship. It's like the judge and the accused now becoming friends together. Except, though that's something we can understand in our individualistic culture, it's something even greater than that, something far more significant than that, because it's a restoration of the relationship between heaven and earth itself. Just as Jesus says in Matthew 6, Verse 9, as he teaches his disciples to pray, he says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But what makes this reconciliation so glorious isn't just what's promised, but what it costs to achieve it. You know, at this point, I just want us to you know, here, if you're, Anything like me, and if you're honest, this is the point where we can often switch off and go, ah, yep, the gospel bit. But I want to allow what we've been talking about for the last two weeks to inform our view of the cross. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the one who perfectly displays God and is ranked above everything that exists. Verse 16, For all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is the one for whom all things were created and for whom all things exist and have come into their being for him. But he didn't just create them, he created them for his glory. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. More, everything that exists is upheld by him. Now behold the price he paid for our redemption. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, By the blood of his cross. Behold the glory of the cross. Our Savior hung from a wooden cross just outside of Jerusalem, horribly beaten, disfigured, nails in his hands and feet, blood dripping down the timber and pulling on the ground below. But not just any man, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. The one who made us for himself, taking our place. Why? Why would the creator die in agony for his creatures? To reconcile to us, to himself. So that we could be in his midst. Such is his great love. That he made peace. By the blood of his cross. Friends, that is why 
his supremacy over the church is so glorious. Because we're not just talking about anyone. We're talking about the king who counted it as a joy to endure the cross for us. Who now leads us. The king who suffered on our behalf that we are now eternally joined to. Friends, that's what makes his supremacy over death so glorious. It's the king who gave it for us all, who promises he will raise us once again in newness of life to be with him and enjoy him forever and evermore. Friends, that's what makes his supremacy among his people so glorious. It's this loving creator of all things who bled to be reconciled to us, who is now our new temple and dwells in our midst. It's the one who sustains all things and we are joined to him now as his temple, a new temple, forever united with him. Isn't that glorious? Well, in closing, Jay Gatsby was a man driven in life by a single motivation. He had a singularly focused gaze that determined everything he did in his life. And that was his fixation on Daisy Buchanan. As Christians, we ought to also have a singularly focused gaze. And that is upon our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I trust these last two weeks you've been able to stop and stare at the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we come before your throne with nothing to offer but thanksgiving and praise. Lord God, you are glorious and you are majestic. You are just Oh, Lord, how you are merciful. Lord, to think that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, would come down to this earth, would live the life that we could never live, would die a horrific death in our place, all so we could find peace with you reconciliation and restoration with you. Lord God, now we cry and we pray, Lord, lift up our gaze, lift up our vision. Help us to see him and his personhood all the more clearly. Help us to see him and his sovereignty above and beyond all of creation more clearly. Help us to see him as the one who is the head of the church, who so lovingly nourishes it and leads it, for whom we have the privilege to be a part. Help us to see him who reigns supreme over death with new resurrection life. And help us to see him who is supreme in our midst, present, binding us together, our new temple. And may every moment of every one of our days that we have left be offered up as a living sacrifice 
as an offer of thanksgiving and praise to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.